This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast looking at how we consume, how we create, how the pieces of our lives fit together. Today we're talking about photography and its various roles in popular culture. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer coming to you at 17 frames per second with way too much magenta. I'm Erica Spires, and I know that a picture is worth a thousand words, but how many notes is that? And I'm Brian Hurt, and I'm coming at you in a stunning 72 DPI. <laughs> and our guest. My name is Amir Zaki, and I am your guest and have nothing clever to say. You come to the table with nothing. No, you're a professional art photographer. Say a little where you're teaching about your book and stuff like that, just so folks know we have an expert among us. <laughs> okay, so I am an artist. I'm a photographer. I teach at UC Riverside, which is about an hour from Los Angeles. I've been there for 20 years. So mostly my relationship to photography is that I exhibit my photographs in a kind of fine art context and teach the subject. I also teach 3D modeling and some digital technology related fields. I don't remember how you probably emailed us at the Partial Examine Life at some point, And we had you on one of our aesthetics episodes there. And we'd done a painting episode here. So I was like, we got to do photography. And you're the guy that I know who's a big name in this world. And of course, podcast being the perfect medium for the visual arts. I know. (laughs) Hey, we've done it before. We've done it a few times. So, well, we have. And, you know, the important thing is when we reference something, we want people listening, whatever they're doing, to just get out their phones. If you're driving, if you're performing open heart surgery, just get it out so you can see what we're talking about. We should also all talk about our own relationships to photography because myself, I'm a tall person. And back before the selfie era, I was constantly being handed cameras saying, take our picture because there's this assumption that when you're higher than people, you'll take a better picture. And it turns out that's actually one of the only two tricks to taking people's pictures is not looking up their noses. So that's about the extent of it for me. Your height privilege has given you an advantage as a photographer. So many actually in life. I have long arms like extraordinarily long arms. So I also get asked to take a lot of pictures for people. But no, I'm no kind of photographer. I have to know a little bit about it because I'm an actor and it's helpful in marketing and so much as that goes. But no, I don't know that much about it. And I'm really excited just to actually learn more. Like a lot of times we try to come in with a bit more information and know-how about the subject. But in this particular one, I really feel like you are going to school us. And I'm excited about that. As an actor, Erica, do you know which is your good side? Because I have an opinion. <laughs> about her good side or not your... <laughs> do you want to see if they match up? <laughs> With the cameras and the internet, I never know which is left and which is right anyway. <laughs> your right, my right, or stage right. It's, it's all... As someone interested in inner beauty, I would think laparoscopic is definitely the, the best inside? side. <laughs> the inside? The inside. What about you, Mark? I know just enough about photography to know that I'm terrible, terrible at it, that I have a rich visual imagination that I can never come close to uh, capturing when I try to use any kind of device. It's really interesting when I hear those things because I did not grow up making art at all. I was my dad is a scientist and my mom was a school teacher. They both were school teachers. And I just never liked or felt like I was good at drawing. And that remained through college when I took any of those kinds of classes. But photography just completely clicked. Something about the mechanical part of it, I think, just turned. Oh, you know. oh I didn't mean to do that. He was yeah. just going to let that pass. You had to. Not me. <laughs> so have you found that the medium has changed a lot insofar as how you feel about it from the time you started and now with all the new technology that's available? A little history, because just by chance, my kind of coming of age with photography 
was in the early 1990s, I guess. And this is right at the transition between analog and digital. There's a major shift culturally with digital photography coming in and taking over. So my training as an undergrad was all in analog photography. And my love for photography comes from becoming very good, I guess, at all the things analog, printing, making photographs from film, all the tactile things that photographers like to speak romantically about now. I love all that stuff. And I became very good at it at a young age. But I also completely took on digital photography with the same passion. So there's a lot of times now there's a kind of purist. There's a little bit of a kind of us versus them with people who stuck with analog and only like analog and think that digital is this kind of heresy. And I just never really thought of it that way. I think that they're both incredibly powerful tools. So I became very proficient and utilized a lot of things digital as the transition happened. And my practice is a hybrid between the two. As far as the changes that I've seen, the biggest change has been... So when I first started, the photographic print, like an object that you would behold on the wall, was kind of the only thing or in a scrapbook or whatever. It was how you would see images was through books, tactile things. And there was an object quality to these things, much in the way that music people like vinyl, you know, it's this thing, right? As that shifted, and now let's fast forward 30 years, 25 years, where Instagram is the way you look at photographs, the meaning of the print has changed. So for me as a fine art photographer, my relationship to the medium has shifted where I think about how images function in digital form, which I have an active social media practice and I post things and I, and I love the immediacy of that but also how I can continue to make things that people behold on the wall in a way that those things stand out. And that's becoming harder and harder, really hard, actually. But it's totally what makes me still love doing it. I make images that are very small, up to five by six feet. I use technology that really enhances the details so that when you see something in real life, a photograph of mine or something, you can walk up to it and it holds a detail that you'd never be able to see in digital form. It's really about how you can keep, if you're invested in prints, which is something some photographers are, are invested in, or the object, just like a painter is invested in the object, you have to find ways of making those things difficult to reproduce digitally. How much are you thinking about how something will be produced when you are taking an image? The context of social versus making a print or, or possibly both. Do you always have that intention in the creative moment or not necessarily? I kind of have a couple parallel practices. So I make work that actually is intended just to be on Instagram. I've been photographing crows for the last six months and I just do it. I go out, it's a daily practice. It's like someone who meditates or practices Tai Chi or whatever. I go out and I photo, I try to find crows and I photograph them and I post them on Instagram. It only exists in this small digital format. I don't think I'd ever make prints of that work, but I also have my fine art practice where I make these things that are very elaborate. So for instance, these things I shared with you, the skate park series, the California concrete book, those are made with a really elaborate technology. So those are made with a camera that's mounted on a moving tripod head. And it's very high resolution. It's basically made of multiple rows and columns of pictures that I stitch together later on the computer to create an incredibly huge, high detailed image. Each one of those takes 
10, 15 minutes to make one image. So I'll set up, you know, start the process and it's all this post-production, digital alteration, et cetera. So that process is so, so different in terms of subject matter, in terms of approach than it is for me walking around with my cell phone photographing. That was super fascinating to me in, in the video. Brian, what were you saying? I agree, Erica. That was really interesting to watch. And, and hearing you talk about your evolution as an artist, you're old enough to remember when digital photography was patently worse than analog photography. The earliest digital cameras were made by computer companies. They weren't made by companies that actually knew how to make lenses, right? And they were terrible. They, and it was sort of a shame. I have this little era of pictures that are just junk because I insisted on taking them <laughs> oh, so with bad. an yeah. HP digital camera. Hold on to them. They will be cool one day. <laughs> and then they became on par with each other. And now really what you're doing with those skate parks can't be done with any analog camera that I know about. And I'm, I'll be interested to see in five, 10 years what else can be done with digital cameras. Honestly, that is the conversation that I like to have. If I go and I do lectures, I inevitably run into a purist in the audience who is just like, analog photography is, is all there is. Really, they're just different. The Gigapan, which is the, the sort of brand name of the thing I'm using, that yields a kind of image. That process yields a kind of image that you cannot make with analog. It doesn't mean that you cannot make a super interesting image with analog. It just means you can't make that image. I'm totally fascinated by what it can do. The other peculiar thing about photography is that a kind of common held belief, I guess, among people who just don't do it for a living is that that somehow what you're seeing through a lens is actually accurate. And it's terribly distorted. I mean, the more you analyze it, the more you see, okay, well, a wide angle lens does this, a telephoto lens does this. And this process I'm using actually combines those two things in a very strange way. So it's using a telephoto lens, which compresses space, but I'm making an incredibly wide angle view. So normally you'd get that fisheye look. And in, in my process, you actually don't. So even that in the fact that I can get very close to a subject, make a very wide view of it, yet it doesn't look distorted, is a distortion of reality. No photography reproduces what our eyes see. There's great philosophical writing about this kind of thing, but it's all a, a, some kind of distortion, and we just kind of correct for it in our minds and think, well, that's closer to reality than this or whatever. And it's but, a four-dimensional image because you're stitching together different moments in time. And what we're seeing is something that never actually happened in any given moment. Absolutely. We wouldn't know that without knowing how they're made. It's fascinating. So the only thing I had to compare it to, I remember the first time I went to Europe, I was with an architecture major. I loved going to cathedrals with him because he explained everything to me. And he had this thing that he loved to do where he would take, at the time, we just had like crappy cameras. Like, I think he may have had a digital but he may have just had a film. I think it may have just been film. And he would take four photos of the bottom of the church, three going up, two to one. And he would frame all of those and make a composite. In that way, it was supposed to be artsy. So it didn't matter if anything overlapped. So in, in the technology you're talking about, do some of these images, I mean, I, I assume, right? They all over, they do overlap. And then you somehow have to merge these together and make sure they line up in a particular way. Yeah, totally. So luckily, a lot of that is done by software, not by my hands. But the, the important thing is that you get about 30 to 50% overlap in every image. And that's how the software knows it goes through and it just analyzes pixel to pixel and looks at things that are supposed to be synced. There are problems, you know, issues to get some very funny things that happen when things move or like I've photographed lots of trees and when the trees move, 
in the wind, it can't quite know what to do. So you get these interesting blurry parts of images. I usually welcome those kinds of things rather than see them as mistakes. I've been in one of those pictures at a baseball game, at a, at a playoff game, and <laughs> they had it online afterwards to see. And you're right, there are all these little spots that are wonky and weird and people are blurry. But it's sort of fun to see an image like that, that you would never imagine that crowd scene. And then you zoom in and finally you get to the crappy seat in the upper deck where I'm sitting and there I am with my dad. And clearly you can see us high-fiving in the picture. What a thing that just wouldn't be possible without the right. technology. And you were only high-fiving that moment that the picture took. Right. No, the whole time, me and my dad, <laughs> we had our hands up. Can we use the California concrete, a landscape of skate parks, to compare this art photography to more practical photography? That what is unique about your skate parks is that they're all empty. You would not be able to do this kind of stitching together. It's definitely a study of a still life, what you're doing. And you got Tony Hawk to write an intro to the book. So you must have some support among the skaters, but you were saying that there's sort of ambivalence that what normally people would bother to photograph these spaces for is, you know, I can just picture like some action shot of somebody caught midair and, you know, with the sweat yeah. flying off them. And like, that's the best possible capturing the essence of what skating is. But yet you're doing this more Buddhist emptiness study. The whole project happened in a very organic way. I mean, I had been interested in these sculptural forms, these concrete forms from my interest in the landscape. I've been photographing the, the landscape in California one way or another for 20 years. I'm constantly looking for things that are overlooked, things that people just find them, but through my process, I can make them more interesting, hopefully. And I also grew up skateboarding, so I had some sort of relationship so when I did want to photograph them, one of the biggest difficulties was trying to photograph them without people. I don't photograph people in my work. I'm always under the impression that photography is inherently about people because it's always about a kind of personal point of view. It's a view into the world from particularly some humans' perspectives. Also, there's a very rich history of skateboard photography, right? There's these mostly guys who are, you know, been doing it for 30 years and they're so highly respected. They're very good at what they do. It's just not my gig. And I was met with, you know, realistically 99% positive vibes from skaters and, and people who came across it and a, a very small percentage of kind of suspicion. Like I got some comments on Instagram when the book got quite a bit of press. One person wrote something like, yeah, but can he drop in? Like, can I drop into the, and you know, that kind of thing. So there's a feeling among skaters that skateboard photographers are also skaters themselves. It's this kind of in crowd, which I totally understood. I mean, that is part of the culture, but I think that it came as a surprise that I did emphasize the forms of these parks and excluded skateboarders, intentionally excluded them. But again, mostly positive and mostly I think people got it. And I think that a very small percentage are like, why would he do that? That's not the interesting thing. But that raises a question, though. And that is, can you drop in? Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> we, we saw you skating. I didn't want to say so ahead of time, but I can't. I, well, I just turned 46 and I skated as a kid, took a long break, skated again when I was in my 30s after I had my first child and was having my first midlife crisis, first among many. And I started skating again. And then probably the last five, six years ago, probably the last time I actually dropped in. My hips are uh, too precious to me at this point to do much of that. I surf. And recently, I've gotten one of these electric skateboards. And those things are super fun for old guys 
You said a couple of things in there that just were absolutely beautiful to me and got me thinking about a lot of other things. As Mark was saying, you know, you get into this Buddhist ideal and you talked about the Tao and the quote was, having something is beneficial, having nothing is useful. And I was like, I have to to write that down. It's gorgeous in so many ways. And in this particular way, you talk about how there were these pools that weren't being used in the 1970s because of wildfires, right? And drought. So skateboarders started seeing this as an opportunity to use it for something else. So you have then taken this thing that the skateboarders have been using, these skate parks, and now it's the absence of that. And you're seeing it as what exactly? What is your use for that? I guess it's two things. It's highlighting the actual forms and materials as part of the contemporary landscape. So part of what I imagine when I look at photographs of the landscape made 50 years ago, sometimes it's this interesting thing about comparing and contrasting like, oh, look at what's changed here. Look at this photograph of New York City, you know, from 1950. And so I feel like I'm part of a legacy of people recording the landscape. It gets complicated because I'm digitally altering things, but I'm quite aware of that. And I see these as being things that will look really strange in 50 years. There's a huge proliferation of these things all over the world, basically excavations of land and then poured concrete in formations that basically mimic mountains and rivers and valleys. And that was partially my interest. I mean, one of them in particular literally looks like Half Dome in Yosemite. You know, and when I looked at it, I was like, oh, there's, look at that Ansel Adams photograph of Yosemite, except it's concrete and I'm going to make this picture. So that's a primary interest is really in these things as part of our contemporary landscape that hasn't really been recorded in the way that I did it in a kind of serious way. The other maybe like conceptual thing is what you touched upon, which is that a lot of what I make pictures of has something to do with highlighting the relationship between function and dysfunction. And so skate parks function as things that skaters use, right? So this is, that's their function is to kind of propel them into the air and blah, blah, blah. When I'm photographing them, I'm often photographing not only empty, but a lot of times it's kind of after rain or I'll highlight a big pile of leaves. And these are things that would call into question the function of this thing. I'm doing that a lot in my work, and it's somewhat of a strategy to kind of create something that's a little more alienating. Yeah, and I'm interested in what the range of philosophies regarding photography are and how those relate to the way that, let's say, ordinary people or practical working photographers, whether wedding photographers or snapping posed and supposedly candid shots of families capturing the moments of our lives, are the people the most important thing or not? Like that's a very fundamental thing that you can be artsy by calling into question these primary assumptions of the everyday use of the things. Any other thoughts? How's the evolution of your photography philosophy been? Or or are there other schools that entice you even as you don't partake of those philosophies? Since I, I teach the subject, I often start like a first day and beginning photography with a discussion about what photography is in this culture. I mean, when you ask a typical undergrad, you know, what sculpture is or what painting is, you know, they go somewhere. It's like, oh, Mona Lisa or David, you know, they think of fine art. But photography, the primary go-to is not fine art. It's this complicated thing that overlaps with medical photography and snapshots and people doing selfies. And the waters are so much more muddied in terms of its use in the culture. It's so, it's so complicated. That said, with, even within fine art, quote, fine art, there are like hierarchies and trends that come and go. I remember when I was in graduate school, I, I never photographed 
people, but there was this quite this trend of portraiture that just kind of came out of the blue, was championed by a few people. And there was a few years where it looked like every single photographer coming out of grad school was making portraits of mostly young women sort of looking off into the distance. <laughs> These things do change. I personally love good examples of every genre of photography. My portraiture lecture is two days long and I show just gobs and gobs of portraits. I've never made a portrait that I think of in terms of my art, but I respect it so much. There's such great stuff out there. Well, there's something that I've been hearing you say, Amir, that I wanted to ask about. You've been using the term making pictures rather than taking pictures. Yeah. It, it sounds like it's a distinction and it's not just that you're an artist, but it's really the whole approach to this. You start talking about the different things that pictures do. Honestly, for me, more than anything right now, it's a way of capturing and conveying information in a way that's just ridiculous. I look at my picture roll, especially during the pandemic, and about half of them are the grocery store. Like this is the sushi case. I'm sure I texted at home. And to think about not that long ago, I would go on vacation and I had two rolls of film that I bought and I probably wasn't going to buy anymore. And I put so much thought into every picture I took, knowing that this is going to be how I'm going to document my trip. What a world. But I guess to get back to this idea of making versus taking, I don't think I've ever made a picture as such. How do you perceive the difference between what you're doing and what I'm doing? Who made the pictures behind you? Did you make any of those? I didn't. I printed and framed six pictures of six different places that I've lived in my life. Oh. And some of them were purchased. And a few were from friends who I got their permission and I got their high res. And of course, I decided how they'd all go together and I cropped them and I matted them. And So you did make them. I didn't make anything. You made a composite. <laughs> you made it. Yeah. I was never behind well, uh, the camera of any of these, but they all make me happy. Yes, you're right. I probably use that subconsciously at this point. I mean, I think of the making of a picture as having so many decisions. So by nature, photography is subtractive as opposed to painting being additive, right? You start with a blank thing and you add to it. Photography is there's an infinite world apparently out there and you are subtracting and subtracting and subtracting until you frame it. So that's the first choice. The second choice is cropping it later, changing it, deciding out of 20 that you just made of the same thing, which is the best one, etc. As far as the use for information, I mean, I of course do that too. I photograph the beer aisle and ask somebody which ones they want. An interesting thing that I've seen happen is that sometimes as an icebreaker with my students, I'll ask them to share with the class when they're introducing themselves the third to last picture on their phone to describe it visually, kind of what we're doing here to not show us. And sadly, in the last few years, it'll be something like, I swear so often, my class schedule. It'll be a, a screenshot of their class schedule. And I'll just go, oh. <laughs> really, I mean, this is what your question gets to is that I honestly think that Photography is observation. It's simply being interested in observing the world around you in a kind of heightened way. So the fact that I'm photographing crows every day or whatever is not that I'm particularly good at photographing crows. It's just that somehow in my mind, I think to do it and I think to observe the world around me in a way that pays attention to something in particular. And I'll make 50 of them or whatever. And it's not this idea that everyone is great. It's this idea that through practice of observing, you get better at observing. So I think that's the only difference really between using it as information where you're not really thinking about observing the sushi case, although you could, you know, it would just take a little shift in the way you're thinking about it. 
All of this got me thinking, basically, I don't know, what is this episode? Is it going to be the philosophy of photography, like behind photography? What do you think, Mark? What is... That's so far, at least, where we're sitting here. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because we all do it, but we all do it for various reasons. And we rarely, I think, question why we do it. And you've mentioned making. You also said you create images that manifest the world as you want them to be. And I was reminded of a play that I did several years ago called Time Stand Still, which is about a war photographer. So this is a very different type of photography. And a lot of the philosophy behind that photographer in the play was to bear witness, to be there to bear witness to certain things and to show that to the world. And I played this character who was like very much against that. So I just had to pull this out. So she says, I saw this nature thing on TV about Africa. There was a sandstorm and a baby elephant got separated from his mother. It was so sad. She was there. You could see her, but there was like a dune and they couldn't find each other. And the poor little guy got so lost and scared. You know, he'll never survive out there without his mother. But the people did nothing. They just kept filming. And the photographer says, that's what they were there to do. The camera's there to record life, not change it. Animals perish in the wild. That's life. And it's really sad and unfair, but there's nothing we can do about it. The elephant was meant to die. And she says, how do you know? Are you God? Oh, honey, (laughs) they could have saved him. The whole crew was just standing there watching. And she says, the camera was there. You can't expect photographers to step into the frame and fix the things they don't like. We're supposed to capture truth, not stage it. So completely different, right, than what we're talking about in terms of artistic photography. Do you find that to be true? Because like, clearly they're not just taking pictures of the world as it is. They are subtracting certain things to focus in on a person's face, on a victim's face or body. That's a really interesting question or subject. So my feeling about this is that I remember learning about photography, maybe my first undergraduate class or something. And somehow either something the professor said or something we read or just a classroom discussion where the idea of the exploitive quality of photography came up, right? And I remember thinking it is. Photography is inherently or mostly inherently an exploitive medium. It depends on the value you give to the word exploit, right? Exploit to what end in order to sort of make someone's life horrible or just as a descriptor. It's like the word privilege is used. It's like privilege is just a description that doesn't have a value automatically attached to it. We just use it that way. So I guess I kind of came to terms with that really early on that what I was doing, it's exploiting the circumstances for an image. Well, I mean, it's done in so many different, obviously, it's not just journalism either, you know, like this happens in film and TV all the time. And so much is manipulated. And even some of those articles that were posted, I looked at, I mean, I think journalism is problematic because it pretends to be objective. And it's not. I have a very good friend, a neighbor who's a photographer for the LA Times, and he has a completely different ethics that they're built on. Like they are sworn to never digitally alter their images and they stick by it, but they do all these other things like use a lens that distorts things in a way. So it's sort of bogus in this sense, this idea of objectivity. Whereas for me, I feel completely free from having any moral obligation to depict the world in some way that will make someone else happy. Luckily, that's just what I'm interested in. I photographed for the college newspaper for like a month and had to leave because I photographed at the time, it was Halloween, and I my girlfriend at the time, she was a nun and she had a cross covering her face. And it was this funny photograph of her. And the editor said, never put something in front of someone's face. And I was like, oh, I'm out. (laughs) Not my thing. Rules like that 
don't work. Let me throw another philosophical distinction or question on top of that, which is, are you trying to capture the particular or the general? That I kind of assumed that the ethic of photography now is we're trying to capture something unique. We're trying to capture the particular, even if it's just everyday people wandering around. Like the whole point of capturing it in a photograph where it's frozen is that you don't take for granted anything about it, that you focus in on those details of the expression of the dress, the physicality, the circumstance. When I was just searching photography as popular culture, I found this academic article from 1978 by Jonathan Green that was talking about the photo essay and was talking, you know, kind of how photos were used for journalism through the post-World War II period and insisted on the general, the ideal. So here's sort of a response to your situation, Erica, that you're proposing is that I'm not going to jump in and help the endangered creature because we're trying to capture something that happens all the time. Even if I jump in and help this one, then we're not capturing the thing that is generally happening. So every comedian who says, can't you give that starving kid a sandwich before you take his picture? Like, no, we're trying to convey that a lot of people are starving over here. We can give them a sandwich after we take the picture, but like, we're not going to disrupt the picture, the capturing that generality with our meddling. So general or specific. (laughs) That's interesting, Mark, because then that makes me think, well, sure, but if you capture the picture of giving the kid the sandwich, is that then going to make other people think like, okay, I should take some action rather than just feeling bad and turning the page? On the other hand, some people will see somebody giving somebody a sandwich and think, oh, I don't need to do anything. I could answer, but one more topic (laughs) like this, and we actually are going to be a partially examined life episode. We totally are. (laughs) And not pretty much pop. And I don't know about that. (laughs) Listen, if you got a good conversation going, you just got to go with it. Also, no, I want a sandwich. (laughs) Has anybody seen this documentary that came out, I don't know when, 10, 15 years ago, called The Bridge, about the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge and the suicides that happen on it? I don't think so. No, I've just heard about it. So very briefly, it's totally fascinating. It brings up so many ethical dilemmas that we're talking about, which is that the statistics are clear. So many people every year commit suicide off that bridge or did at the time, just like clockwork. So you could just do the math. Let's say it's 200 a year. You know that every so many days, someone's going to be jumping off. So a camera crew set up on multiple locations with crazy lenses and just filmed the bridge for a year. And they're in a position where they can alert authorities if they see someone that they think is going to jump. But the reality is that two things happen. Sometimes just people kind of climb over that thing and look for four hours and don't jump. And sometimes people just jump. And the film is essentially bringing awareness to the reality of the dangers of this bridge and the, the fact that suicide rate is so high. But it's also really haunting the fact that basically, you know, you're going to film a suicide. And they do. They film multiple suicides that they can't stop. I thought it would have gotten a lot more attention than it did. But anyway, that kind of brings up some pretty real ethical dilemmas with the use of the medium. It brings attention to a problem. But like I said earlier, one could also say that's quite an exploitive use of the medium. And there are things across disciplines where you don't do unethical things, even if they would be beneficial and not to get too far afield, but using medical data that the Nazis collected. 
right? It could be beneficial, but it's still not used. And the idea is there's a precedent and there's a slippery slope and, and you don't do it and it's not done. I think most of us aren't in that position with what we do. And it's not like it's someone who was happened to be taking a picture. It's someone who set out to make a documentary. They knew it was going to happen. So is it something they address in the movie? It's discussed. And I think that it's one of those things where they're sort of providing two things. They're making what they know will pique people's curiosity, but they also saved some lives. They also were able to alert the authorities when it seemed like someone was going to. I think something similar happens in the movie Free Solo about the climber who free climbs El Capitan. And the camera crew is aware that they're filming him may cause his death. Yeah. They're in his way there. And you also get a sense that this movie would only have succeeded if he either succeeds or dies, right? Failing would not make a good movie. I'm not sure dying would make a great movie. Succeeding made an Oscar winning documentary for whatever that's worth. Right. It was terrifying. That was a terrifying film. (laughs) (laughs) One more note on the Golden Gate Bridge. There was a website, maybe there still is, called Strange Maps. And it aptly named publishes all sorts of different strange maps. Someone made a map of the San Francisco Bridge based on, I guess, every post has a number along the bridge. And numbers of suicides based on how far into the bridge they would go, which side they were facing, whether they were successful or whether they didn't die when they jumped off. And wow, people like to aim themselves out into the ocean rather than into the bay. They, I guess, want that contemplative look before they go out. They tend not to go out that far before they jump. I mean, it was really interesting psychological survey broken into hard numbers, kind of gruesome, but maybe something to be learned. You know, we haven't talked about still versus video really yet, other than taking a still picture allows people to meditate in a way on something, you know, it takes it out of time, it falsifies it just by freezing it. But it seems, you know, most of the ethical issues that we've been discussing apply equally well to both. Any initial take on that distinction? What do you think, Mark? You keep asking a lot of questions. Let's get an opinion out of you. Yeah, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) The prevalence of more video is one of the things that I was feeling like has marginalized photography Further in everyday use in pop culture, you know, what is the way that you want to capture your kids? It's interesting just in record keeping, like, do you keep all the videos in one place? Do you keep all the photos in one place? Are they just together because they're all taken via your phone? And they're actually, there was some default on the iPhone that we found we were taking pictures and they by default had this Harry Potter effect that it's actually doing a very short video rather than live. Yes, that live feature. Maybe that's the future is because you want to have some sort of movement. But in any case, you know, it used to be that for journalism, you know, it was the still photo was the thing that can capture best. You can make it more iconic or something. But now that seems to have been replaced in more and more contexts that you don't need a video of the liquor aisle to text at somebody, that photography maybe has a a very specific, more utilitarian function, unless you're pursuing it as a fine art. I'd say so. I mean, I think that video is probably more widely used to just simply disseminate information, right? So like you were saying, maybe you don't need a video of the liquor aisle, but you might FaceTime who you want to show this information to and have literally a live video conversation. I mean, we're doing this as opposed to a few years ago where we would have done it by audio only. So there is some sort of, it's the go-to to capture memories in a way that are just a little bit more, just more information. I see it going that direction for sure. So yeah, whether it makes photography, still photography, I guess I imagine that still photography will continue to then be more of a niche 
activity or maybe something that is more reserved for people who are interested in the aesthetics of it as opposed to video documentation of their kid walking or whatever. This might be a stupid question, but do you think still photographers make good cinematographers? So an interesting joke about that is like within the kind of photo fine art world, they always talk about how when a photographer decides to make a, a film or video, they just put the camera on a tripod and push go. They don't move it. And there's some great examples of that. I mean, some of them, of course, that makes sense. Some of my favorite films are these ones where there's very little tracking. There are lots of shots where the camera stays in one spot and the action unfolds in front of it. It's an amazing Japanese director, Ozu, who, who makes films where there's a lot of that kind of thing. Some still photographers can make really great cinema, but... But it doesn't necessarily always translate. I think great cinematography can be really distracting because it's so non-natural. Yeah. We watched the movie Roma. Perfect example. Which won Best Cinematography. And I was constantly being pulled out of the movie saying, oh my God, look at that. Yeah. Right? That could be a poster. And it's true. And it really was beautiful, especially the ending scene was so stunning to look at. I think it possibly took away from the emotional impact of it. I agree. I end up finding sometimes that I will just talk about how much I like to film for mostly those reasons. I think there's a parallel to maybe it's a sensibility thing. I just, this is just a, a theory that, you know, I'm one of those people who almost never cares about the lyrics in music. I'm just interested in, you know, the sound. And I think that might be similar to the way I approach cinematography. I really love beautiful cinematography and sometimes the story becomes secondary for me. So you're like, the Star Wars prequels are fine. I don't know what you're talking about. There's lots of pretty things moving around. Uh, I sadly haven't seen them, so maybe that's not my, oh. <laughs> my particular. On the flip side, I just love like fantastic dialogue films. Like We've been watching this series on Netflix called Easy. Has anybody seen these? No. Oh, it's pretty good. Or like any Richard Linklater films, like the ones before, or, like just the dialogue. And I don't think about cinematography much in that work, so it's neither here or there. The extreme is we're going to have more and more VR, which seems to make the photographer's eye totally irrelevant. It is the viewer that is deciding where in this 360-degree field to look. I'm sure there are still ways that you could have better or worse VR with the lighting and stuff, but certainly different skill set. Yeah, I don't know a lot about VR. I have this, for better or for worse, I have a condition where I can get dizzy really easily and I can't do much of that. I did it a few years ago and it was so disorienting. And I know there's more people doing it for exhibition. And I think I'm going to miss the boat on that one unless I feel like getting nauseated. Have any of you done any successful VR experiences? Video game VR. I haven't done any of the cinema. I have some friends who did a theater, a VR theater piece. It was filmed in Boston. They did a Shakespeare piece. I'm fascinated. I haven't yet seen it, but I know that they filmed it so that depending on where you look, you can hear a different portion of the play. So it's kind of up to you what you decide to do, but I'm still like confused how they actually made that all work together. I was expecting a little more VR to happen during this pandemic, during sporting events where there are no fans. I thought maybe they'd set up a VR camera just somewhere and you could put your Oculus rift on and just look around the game while it was happening like you were sitting there but how would that work like you'd be at home and you could put on this thing but at that location there's one of those 360 degree cameras where so wherever you turned your head you'd be looking 
Right. It's so cool. Yeah, it's just capturing a lot of information, which generally means pretty bad resolution at this point. That's right. The resolution is where digital cameras were when they first came out. And I think in 20 years, that might be something that really will work. Who knows, 20 years or maybe four weeks, right? Maybe sooner. Yeah. Yeah. And I heard it is one of those things that you kind of adjust to. Maybe at first it's disorienting and it you could become more adjusted to it. But I find it really uncomfortable. It seems like what you're talking about might be more like in video games where it's moving, whereas the VR experiences, we had an episode on live music coming up on a year ago now, where I looked at what the state of it was there, where it really is just like a few VR cameras that they have set around at like a concert. And so you just pick which one you're at, and then from there, you're the one that's looking around, and the field is moving with you. And as long as, you know, you could see how if there's something wrong with the speed at which the scene is changing compared to your head, that could cause nausea. But, you know, it's not like a VR roller coaster or something. It also might not be anything other than something that's for a niche audience. Because, you know, I know that years ago, 3D was like a big thing in cinema. And I'm talking like in the 50s, 60s. There was a big trend for 3D movies. And then it went away. And before that, the talkies, they were real big early on. What are you trying to get at, Brian? Are you making fun (laughs) of me? It was interested because when I lived in Boston, I went to a 3D film fest and, and we wore the red and blue lenses. We didn't, it wasn't the newfangled stuff that's not as, I don't know, sometimes as successful. Obtrusive, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I watched Dial in for Murder. But then those kind of went out and I asked my mom about it. I was, she was like, oh yeah, we used to see a lot of that, but a lot of people were getting sick and I guess people were getting heart attacks or heart palpitations at least. So it kind of went away. So it might be similar with VR. It might have a big following for a little while and we might realize it's back to the good old point and click stuff again. The man who can handle VR has not yet been born. (laughs) It is a man of the future. Could be. We should wind this down. Is there a final topic? I guess there was the issue of, you know, as consumers, we've been talking mostly about how photography plays a role in our lives because everybody is a photographer and it's just a matter of sort of how artsy you want to get about it. But as a viewer, also these iconic images, I guess the, the idea of an idealized or iconic image, I wanted to explore a little bit. Like everybody's very familiar with the pictures on the menu or the pictures in the catalog. You know, that's the kind of, even before digital manipulation was possible, the whole point of photography in a commercial setting seemed to be to idealize to make iconic some image or other, whereas video maybe is harder to pull off. Somebody's going to move in a way that is undesirable as soon as you, (laughs) from the purely aesthetic point of view. Like in advertising photography or... But still in social media as well, Mm -hmm. right? There's a black mirror where someone is recreated from his social media profile and his... I forget if his wife or partner said, you look better than I remember you. And he said, well, we tend to post the pictures where we Mm -hmm. look better. So I think that it's pervasive. And depending you as an artist, Amir, when you're deciding which image to use, you are making some aesthetic choice. And even if the aesthetic you're going for is something that's grotesque, it's still idealized in that direction. I think that the idea of making an idealized image can be approached talking about definitely advertising and even in pop culture, wedding photography, I think probably, actually, I know this to be true that most wedding photography now, the couple is retouched. Like, and I mean retouched, like weight has been lost and things like that, not retouch the pimple. That's pervasive. I'm kind of working on the idea of the iconographic photograph 
in a different way. I mean, I'm trying to make things that seem like they are kind of isolated from the rest of the world and idealized in my idea of what idealization is. So I think it's kind of like two parallel conversations in, in a way. But I will say that the other thing that's happening in still photography and advertising is even weirder is that from what I understand, a lot of product photography, the camera has been taken out of the mix completely. They're just 3D models. A Coke ad is not going to use a camera at all. It's probably completely rendered by 3D software. It's a virtual camera. So they've created the object and then the available points of view. And now we're going to do something like cinematography that is you know, moving the camera around all in a virtual space. Yeah, I do a little bit of that. So the good old days of using mashed potatoes for ice cream are just gone. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to. I work with 3D technology myself and it's totally strange. It's pretty amazing. You can do exactly that. I have a really hard time figuring out what to take photos of. When I went on tour for 15 months, I was going around the country and I first started out taking a lot of photos, like photos of everything. I just felt like I wanted to remember this time. And then I realized I was spending so much time behind my camera, like my phone, that I wasn't always soaking up what was around me in real time. That's one part of it. The other part is I realized when I was in an iconic place, why am I taking a picture of that when it's been way better photos than I can ever take have been taken of it. So then I did start going back and just taking selfies of myself in front of it because I'm like, that's the only thing that makes it special to me is that I was there. The only thing I can do that's different is put myself in it. So it is a question for me. It's almost a moral question for me, right? Every time I get out my phone. Do I need to take this picture? Why am I taking this picture? Could somebody else take it better? Yes. Therefore, is there significance in me doing it? Well, sure. I feel like that happens every single time I get out my camera to take a picture of anything. I think you're describing something so common. I hear this kind of thing all the time. And I think that it's absolutely true that you are missing out on experiencing the present moment when you're distracted by your camera. I do it all the time. I'm sort of like... So self-aware of it, but I'm like so obsessed with making the picture that I'll do it anyway. So on some hike or whatever, it's a distraction. But I think that realizing that there are a thousand other pictures that are made of that same space, I always feel like that's kind of liberating. Then you just don't make that picture. You make some kind of personal photograph. Yeah, whether it's a selfie. I mean, the, the selfie thing is a funny phenomenon because it's essentially evidence. It's just saying to the world you know, that's behind me. I was there, right? I don't quite get that as much. I don't do that very much myself sometimes, but I think it's really common. Like I think that a lot of people have that same and every new billion photographs made are going to make that even more the case. I mean, it used to be that you could go buy a postcard of Mount Rushmore and yet you see there's actually a really famous photograph by a photographer where he's photographing all the people photographing Mount Rushmore. And they're all making essentially the same photograph for their personal memories. Oh, that drove me nuts. I remember going to the Louvre and seeing everybody taking a picture of Mona Lisa. It's pretty absurd <laughs> looking, actually, from a distance. Yeah, And that's exactly the kind of situation, just to circle back, where I feel like, well, my picture of the Mona Lisa looks terrible. <laughs> because it's got, there's the glass, and I, you're just not at all capturing what all these professional photographers <laughs> have already done. And it's been demonstrated that you have a worse functioning memory of that moment for having taken a picture. That's really interesting. Whether it's because you didn't think you had to or, or because some of your cognitive space was busy fiddling with your phone. But I have a friend saw Hugh Jackman and just put her husband in charge of the camera. She's going to be in the moment and he was going to take all the video documentation so she could just experience it. And I thought that made a lot of sense. 
So I think where we're ending up is giving a big advertisement to hire photographers so that you can put your phone down, enjoy the moment, and let the people who are actually good at it take the better picture. Yeah, hire a photographer to be with you at all times, just (laughs) next to you, wherever you go. Well, it might more likely be that we are wearing some device that's constantly recording what's in front of us. Oh, God. Black mirror. That, that's probably more realistic. We know actually. how well the Google Glass almost got people killed before it got pulled from the market. Remind me, what was that? It was like glasses, but there was a camera and a Google device. Yeah. And people got really upset when others would come into their space with this on because it's a little different from having a camera out, knowing that someone's temple of their glasses had a camera that was scanning the room and maybe it was for the purpose of doing internet searches or other things. But I think there were privacy issues and just the general ickiness of someone walking around with a camera mounted to their face. Well, I don't see that going away in the future. I don't want nobody's built-in camera telling if I'm actually a shapeshifter or not. I I want to retain my anonymity. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why you do three podcasts. (laughs) Yes. Only three? So far. Instead of doing selfies everywhere, Eric, I would recommend that you do it kind of like a first-person shooter, where you just have your hand, preferably holding a weapon of some wacky sort in front of you at all time to show that you were in fact there taking the picture. There we go. (laughs) I think there's a market for that. It was not a drone. (laughs) Before we close, Amir, where can we find your work? How do we follow you? So I have a website, amirzaki.com or net either. I am actively on Instagram. You can find me pretty easily. And uh, yeah, the book that came out last year, California Concrete, is available on Amazon. Or you can actually get signed copies directly through me and my website. Send me emails. I like emails from people. They are personal and nice. Thank you, Amir. Thank you. That was fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. This was great. Folks can just look at the blog post accompanying this at prematchpop.com to see the link to get your book and watch the video, read about it, and all that stuff. So, so long, everybody. So long. Bye. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Amir. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.